This episode of How We Grieve deals with a story of domestic abuse. If you or someone you love are the victim of domestic abuse, seek help immediately. The number for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. Listener discretion is advised. St. Paul says, Death, where is your sting? Christians believe in the resurrection of the body. Christians hope in the reality of heaven. But how can this authentic Christian hope exist alongside such sadness and feelings of loss when someone we love dies? Two of the most striking words in the entire Bible are, Jesus wept. Even this eternal God, who became man, wept over the death of his dear friend Lazarus. Walk with us as we explore death and the feelings of loss by those of us left behind. I am Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. John and Gad are sponsor couples for marriage preparation at an upper-middle-class parish in Baltimore County, which is how I first came to meet them. I remember their pastor commenting on how Gat does a little bit of everything at the parish, from counting money to helping families plan funerals, while John is a regular in the contemporary music group. But what I've come to learn from recording How We Grieve and interviewing people is no matter how a person presents themselves, everyone carries things the world can't see. And this couldn't be more true of John and Gat. John and Gat have four children, Hillary, Jessica, Emily, and Jay Joseph. It was only recently that I learned about Jessica's smile. Everyone talks about her smile. <laughs> and I do remember, as her dentist, there was, there was, an, there was an issue uh, <laughs> with, with her front teeth. Uh, that, uh, so I, I helped with that, front, with that smile, I have to say. Uh, <laughs> but, but in any event, that, that, that always comes up. Um, she just always seemed to be mature beyond her years. I don't ever remember <laughs> girlish squabbles and fights in middle school kind of uh, fights like that. She always just seemed to be more grown up than we were. And she was very health conscious. She liked to exercise. She jogged, was, was not, uh, not a marathon runner. When she went to college, you could see her continuing this pattern, this mature pattern. She got a nice group of friends that she joined, but she was always serious. Jessica excelled in school, and by the age of 37, she was managing a team of 100 people at a large investment firm in downtown Baltimore. She picked a career where she could get a job. She did accounting so she could get her CPA immediately. And um, the, the friends in her sorority were close friends, and to this day, we still see a couple of them. Shortly after college, Jessica met Jeffrey, and they married in 1996. They were living in Pittsburgh until the birth of their first child, Christopher. The, the relationship w was always, I, I think, a little on the odd side in that, in that he, he traveled even once they moved to Baltimore, and then he continued to work out of town five days a week. And I feel that uh, he could have easily found a job in town, but, but I, I think that probably enabled him not to have a relationship. You know, he was able to have this long-distance relationship, which is probably all he needed. During the course of their relationship, it became clear that Jeff struggled with mental health issues. 
at times requiring hospitalization at Shepherd Pratt. There were uh, two suicide attempts, one with taking pills, the other with trying to run the car in the closed garage. Jessica and Jeff went on to have a second child, but as time went on, it became clear that Jeff experienced significant mental health issues and the relationship was not working. The first time that we knew that he had tried to commit suicide and he came back from from that, he was so absent from Jessica. I mean, she she called us. She was so upset because he wouldn't talk to her. He would he was so angry with her because he felt that she was the reason that he had to go into um, Shepherd Pratt. So at one point, Jessica told him we were getting a divorce, and he pushed her. So she was getting ready to go out the door to work, and the children were there. And at that point, he tried to strangle her. Before we go any further. Something that many people don't know is strangulation is actually very serious and is one of the key indicators of future lethal violence. Certainly strangulation and if there's a gun in the house and if you've ever been threatened, we generally consider are the top three. This is Dr. Sharon O'Brien, director of Catholics for Family Peace at the Catholic University of America. So if the person who's being abusive attempts to strangulate, someone is like a huge warning sign, even if it's only for a split second. And oftentimes there aren't marks, but there's still damage done no matter how brief it is. But the biggest damage, of course, is the fact that it's perfectly clear that the abuser is willing to kill the other. And I would caution people to absolutely stay calm and decide what they're going to do. Don't threaten to leave. Don't you yourself get into name-calling. Just realize that, huh, I was thrown against the wall. That's that's not okay. Or I was indeed tripped going down the steps. You know, there's, there's no way to explain that it was an accident. So the physical violence, it's important to pay attention to that. Now, his parents are in the basement now, and they hear this commotion, and his mother came up and got him off her, and she took the boys and brought them over to us. And I will never forget it. She came in, and we were sitting in the kitchen, you know, at the island, and we were talking, and she said, you know, Mom, I think maybe I should call the police. I should report this. And I said, yeah, you know, but you never think, you never think that someone that is supposed to be loving you will ever do anything to hurt you. You just, it's such a hard thing to fathom. And so she she did. She called the police, they came, they took the report, and they told her to get a restraining order, which she did immediately. Jessica filed a temporary protective order on April of 2007. And unbeknownst to us at all this time, he had sent his parents out of the house, and his mother said, Later, she said, I didn't think something was right. And we went back, and he had tried to commit suicide again. And they found him and revived him. And again, he had time that he had to spend getting help. And Jeff was again hospitalized later that month. So anyway, at at this point, Jeff had visitation rights on the weekends to take the two boys, they're four and seven, and he could take them on the weekend as long as his father was along. They allowed his father to help with the supervision. So this went on uh, about two months or three months. So I I remember one particular instance when um, 
we had taken the boys to the fair, so this would be early September. We took them to the fair that day because Jessica called and told us that he had not showed up for his appointment with the psychologist. That was a red flag that somebody went to the apartment. He didn't answer the at the apartment. They didn't know where he was. So she said to us, get out of the house. We took the children to the fair. When there is domestic violence in a relationship, often the most dangerous time for a survivor of abuse is when they leave. Again, Dr. Sharon O'Brien. Why would any of us stay in any situation? Because it is the safest thing to do, all things considered. We know that leaving is the most dangerous time, meaning it is the time she is most likely to be killed. So let's say a woman has tolerated abuse uh, for 20 years. It's when she's declared that she's leaving She's made arrangements and she's in the process of leaving. That is when she's most likely to be killed, which is why we emphasize the importance of developing a safety plan and to not announce that you're leaving, actually, Um, and to be sure that you're in a position where you can take everything that you need, birth certificates, immigration records, passports, monies. Working with a professional, you can list, you can figure out what... um, what you need to do. But yeah, leaving is, um, um, is a dangerous time. And I do remember the feeling of being at the fair, looking around, I wonder if he's going to show up and, and give us some trouble here at the fair. I, I remember that feeling. So that's early September, you know, you know, when the fair is. So anyway, about two weeks later, she's home with the two boys. He comes on a Friday night with his father to pick up the boys, and I guess they're going to take him for the weekend and go to his apartment and do various things over the weekend, including going to soccer practices and so forth. So he pulled the car into the garage to to pick up the boys. His father's in the car. At some point during the summer of 2007, Jeff made a trip to South Carolina. He had purchased a gun, we assume, on the street in South Carolina. The boys come out. Jessica and Jeff are not supposed to have any contact. He, the boys get into the car, and Jeff says, Oh, I need to ask Jessica something. Dad, will you go in and get Jessica? Uh, the grandfather of the boys goes in, gets Jessica to come out, and when, he, when she comes out of the door, uh, he shot her uh, directly right there. The two boys were in the car at the time. At the time, Christopher was eight and Matthew was five. The youngest one said to the older boy, um, this is what he said. He said, Daddy just shot Mommy. And, and the older boy said, I don't want to talk about it. Then he went into the house and, as it turns out later, shot himself, went up to one of the bedrooms and shot himself and killed himself. So he, so he committed suicide there. And the, the grandfather took the two boys and skedaddled out of there. Uh, I really think he wanted to get the boys out of there because when Jeff went back into the house, there was no way for him to know that he wasn't going to come back back out. And and then at that point, after he had shot her twice, she stumbled out into the front yard and fell. And she was saying, call 911, call 911. Gat was out of town with her daughter, Hillary, for the birth of her son, Owen. John was in town, but unable to be with Jessica in her final moments. 
Fortunately, her close friends and neighbors were with her as she took her last breath. So right there, you're, you're worried now. I mean, you've lost your daughter, and you're thinking, what's going to happen? How are these children ever going to recover from, from this? And, I mean, it was that, that act is so far-reaching, and you just don't realize uh, how far-reaching it is until you get into to dealing with, with all the grief that you have, but it's the grief that everybody else has. I mean, there were so many people that were touched by this one evil act, but the or or bad or however you want to describe it. I I I don't really know the right kind of adjective to describe what it what that is. But the beauty of it is is that the good that is in people is so much stronger than anything that can ever happen. I, I truly believe that. I think God has just, has so blessed our family through this really horrific act, but has taken care of, of it all. I believe my, my daughter, who I lost at a, an early age, is in heaven. I believe that she is, um, praying for us every day, that she prays for those children. She, I know, I know she does. John and Gat, thank you for sharing your story. I know that even though some years have passed, it must still be difficult to talk about. Do you have any suggestions for our listeners to be aware of with regards to domestic violence or intimate partner violence? The answer that I I usually have for that is um, I can speak as a parent of a victim. And the only thing that I can say to other parents would be, if you know that this is going on, the only thing that you really can do is to make sure that the person who's being abused knows that they always, always have a place to go. They are never alone. They can always come to you no matter what you will have an open door. And no matter how many times they come to you and then go back to the the same abuser, still remain vigilant in keeping that door open for that person because you never know when the time is going to be that they're going to stay there and you're going to have your daughter with you or your son. Would you like to add anything, John? Not having had uh, any domestic violence between <laughs> my wife and between God and I, it, it's hard hard to speak. I can only speak as a parent. And I would say, don't think you're being too meddlesome. It, it's an unusual relationship between a father-in-law and a, and a son-in-law and a, a daughter-in-law. On the one hand, you don't want to raise your grandchildren like your own children, but don't hesitate to be a little bit meddlesome if it's going to save a life. Try to stay involved with your children and your grandchildren as much as you can. Uh, it's a fine line between uh, uh, jumping in too soon and uh, not. And you know, I always say maybe I could have been a little bit more involved and been a little bit more outgoing in, in the things that I saw. Did you find there were any red flags with Jeff 
uh, with his behavior or relationship with Jessica? It was, it was August 31st. The, and this should have been a wake-up call for us. Uh, it was August 31st that he was supposed to be at the psychologist. They couldn't find him anywhere. That was their anniversary. He said, well, he was there. He said he was in, in his apartment, but that he was asleep. You know, you look back and you, you think to yourself, gee, uh, was his, why, why didn't we pay more attention to that? That was a breach of his agreement. Agreement. He should not have had the children that the weekend that he did, but he did. And those are all things that you know you have to come to terms with when you're you're grieving. You get. I mean, I think maybe I was a little angry about that at the time. But if somebody wants to do somebody a harm like that, they usually can find a way to do it. I I I think I I let that that anger slip slip away a little while ago. But things still come up and it's not like you don't think about it and say 11 years down the road you're you think you have a, a thought in your mind and and you and it throws you right back to where you were the day that it happened that you found out about it that and, and, just, I, and just to re- reiterate another anger we have is that someone who's shown has already demonstrated the ability to physical abuse the strangling is actually the most intimate way that you can harm someone. And that all the people who work in spousal abuse know that that's a red flag. Someone who's demonstrated that can then have permission to pick up his kids to come in contact with his wife, only being watched by his family, who, for our way of thinking, is part of the reason he had his problems. <laughs> so in any event... I think there's been probably legislation since then that, that's tightened up yes. on this restraining order issue. And we, we've worked with the House of Ruth. They, they've had us uh, come to the events and talk to some people. And, and we think there's been some improvement in legislation. One challenge of trying to support people who experience intimate partner violence is isolation. Did you witness that between Jessica and Jeff? When Jessica realized that there were issues in the marriage, she went to a psychiatrist. She entered into therapy. And one of the things that they really stressed with her was do not let him totally separate you from your family and your friends. And she really worked hard at that. They would go to parties in the neighborhood, but he never really joined into them. But she remained active in all that she did. She was very active at, at her job. I mean, she had charge over 50, 100 people. I mean, she was very up in her comp- in that company. And as soon as they, they realized that there was an issue with violence in her life, they really uh, made very sure that no one got into that building downtown, that they didn't know who they were. They made sure that she had a safe place to park in the building. So she was very well liked and well thought of. And the fact that he wasn't home during the week, she had a normal life. And on the weekends, I always had them to dinner every Sunday. Dinner was always on Sunday, They and they always came. She always made sure that she kept in touch with the family on that level. So yeah, that really is a big thing, the isolation. But that's how she handled it, because I think Jessica never feared for her life. She thought that she would get the call that he had harmed himself, but not her. 
I don't think she she really, and, and her friends said they didn't. They all thought that he would commit suicide before he would harm her, but he was really spiraling down. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. More with John and Gat in a bit. Stay with us. I'm Edward Herrera, and this is How We Grieve. Before the break, we were speaking with John and Gat about the death of their daughter, Jessica. Before we get back to that conversation, another important word from Dr. Sharon O'Brien. So understanding what a marriage is, that love and respect and honor and dignity, then there is no place for abuse and violence in a marriage. And the church is clear and has been actually. You can Google Canon 1153. It's very clear that if one spouse endangers the other spouse's life or the children or makes it too difficult, then that person has a moral obligation to protect their lives and the lives of their children. So even though you may never have heard a homily about it, even though uh, your particular priest may not speak to this issue, the church itself, since the Middle Ages even, has been very clear that a sacramental marriage is meant to be based on honor and love and respect. And if that's not the case, then one has an obligation to to figure out what to do. I mean, we, we have no comment uh, about separation or divorce or, or, or what to do. The first thing is to know that abuse and violence is not a Catholic value. Even if you saw your parents or your aunts or your grandmothers, I mean, even though culturally, I mean, this is, I think this is a good opportunity to, to, to distinguish between what culture allows and what the Catholic Church condones. The Catholic Church is clear that there's no place for abuse and violence in a marriage. So. Uh, she had met Jeff through his sister, who she she worked with at the time. We didn't really know them very well because he lived in Pittsburgh. He was going to school at Carnegie Mellon, and she was working in Philadelphia. So we didn't really know what their dating was because we weren't part of that. But I remember, I remember meeting him, and he was very personable. He was very well-kept and smart. He was very, very smart. I mean, you you would never you would never know that he had a mental illness that was going to be a huge factor in why you don't have your daughter anymore. It's, he is he is an enigma to me. I, I just I don't. What what did you think of him? As it as it turns out, we found out later that he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in high school and was taking medicine medication, so always looked quite normal to us. Just a few little indications I I saw. Um, an example, he was an excellent tennis player in high school, and he suffered an injury enough of an injury that he couldn't compete anymore, and so he completely stopped playing tennis. He wouldn't even hit the ball with me. Who is a, I'm a hacker in tennis, but he wouldn't hit the ball with me because he couldn't play tennis at the high level he wanted to play. Now, to me, I thought, oh, that's a little odd, but never, obviously, seeing into the future. And his interactions with our 
family, we're never close. Uh, Gat's an only child. I'm, I'm a member. I have two brothers, a large family, lots of nieces and nephews. He never became close with any of them and never felt comfortable in that setting. And it seemed like he was happy because they were living further away and didn't have to become uh, close to that. Then when the first child came along, he just seemed so overprotective. It was lucky we could even get our hands on that on that boy at all uh, because of his overprotectiveness. And it, it seemed kind of odd to me that Jessica, who I thought was so mature, so self-confident, would then be sort of dominated by this, this type of personality. And I think it was, looking back, it was the controlling, extreme controlling personality that he had that she acquiesced to to keep peace in the family. Did you all feel well supported by family and friends? I can say that I was in Montana with Hillary, who had just had had a baby in June, and Emily had had this little baby in August. August, and we were out visiting her and having a wonderful time when we got this call. And I want to tell you that is that was some call. But from that very moment, people started to pray. I know they did because we got through it. And I never make plans to go anywhere. And I could get on the phone and I could take care of getting the arrangements to get all of us back. That when we got off that plane, my, my son-in-law was there with his friends were there. They were there. They grabbed us up. They took us. They took care of us. They got us to the house. I walked into that house and there were so many people in there that were with with you and because you were by yourself. Well, Brian stayed with you, but I mean, people came and spent the night. We would go to bed at night. For a long time, people stayed. They would come in and out, and they came, and, and the peace that you felt when you were upstairs and you heard people downstairs, it was, it was almost like when you were a kid and your parents were down there, and you, it was a comfort. People knew what to do, not really, but it was done. And I think that was all God. That is, it just, it had to be. There's just, I would never have thought to do anything so kind for somebody as to stay in their house. And we never fixed a meal, I think, for almost nine months. I mean, people were bringing us food all the time. I think we might have some thoughts on that weekend. So the, the shooting took place on Friday night. And then Saturday and Sunday, I think you came back Saturday night, but all day, all Saturday and Sunday, people were there just bringing food, talking to us, friends that I never thought I had. And Sunday morning, the pastor from Mackey Conception came out and said mass, said mass on our porch because he knew nobody had a chance to go to, go to church. And uh, we realized that this parish was our family, our second, second family, a, a parallel family almost with, with, with that. I can, I can picture the, um, the funeral, uh, the Contemporary group played for the funeral. I had no idea that was going to happen, uh, at least not the details of it. On the altar was the bishop and the cardinal, uh, unbelievably, even though he was in failing health, at, the, at least getting older at the time. And the church was just filled. You knew, uh, first of all, uh, half of the church was filled with people she knew from work. The other half uh, was filled with people who just knew us, just because of 
what because we were involved, not because of what we did or anything that we were, just because they were there to support us. And and that that's been just a, a tremendous blanket of support helping us with, with our grief. Anger is often a part of the grieving process, especially when a life is taken. Did you feel this? You know, I talk about the support and how giving everybody was. But even with all of that, there were plenty of times when I'm in the car actually going to church, having a really serious, angry conversation with God about it because you're just so sad. I never, ever, I can say, blamed him for this. I I don't. (laughs) But that grief comes out and... Quite often I have an angry conversation with God, even, even about silly stuff. But if even if you're angry or you're sad and, and you're talking to him, you're talking to him. You're praying, and he hears that. He knows. He knew. I mean, he gave me the strength way before this ever happened. And I can remember being drawn to daily mass, wondering what God wanted from me, how he was going to use me, and how he has done that in in the parish life. But really, really what he was working on me for was giving me the grace from daily communion to deal with this. Because this was a thing that even today, when you think back, I cry tears of sadness, but tears of joy that he is with me and he brought me through all this and that the boys are doing well and the the, the family is together. The family is intact, and she's still able to be making a difference not only in our lives, but in, in other people's lives. Do you still have anger towards Jeff? I think all of us sometimes have behaviors that we dwell on because they're not perfect, and we tend to think that, um, not that God doesn't love us, but that God has a has a thought about that. And and I think really God loves us right where we are. And wherever Jeff was, I know that to the bitter end of that boy's life, God loved him. And I think God loves him today because I pray that he, before he took his life, had a chance to, to really think about God, about to ask for forgiveness. I, I, I do. I, I, I really can say if he walked in here today, I could in all genuine love, hug him. I don't, and that is a gift from God because if you if you can't forgive that, that ruins the rest of your life. It ruins the rest of my life. It ruins the way I'm I'm with my grandchildren. It ruins the way I am with my husband because I've got all that that unresolved stuff that needs to be forgiven, and so I I, I think that 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 is a grace. Another grace that came, it's, it's even like when you get married, and we tell our couples, you know, you, you receive grace from these sacraments. Well, the grace that you're receiving from the sacrament is to be able to be a better person. And so from all the sacraments that, that you get, your daily mass, daily Eucharist, the gifts that you get from confirmation, all those are to strengthen all of us when we walk through that. This boy didn't have that. He didn't. And for me, that's really a very important part of of grieving, is to be able to to get your grief out, but to also know that you're not grieving alone, that God is grieving right with you because he loved loved Jessica and he also loved this soul that took her life. 
Can you share with us the role that faith has played in your grieving and healing? Yeah. Um, I remember when we were in the funeral home and there were so many people. And I thought, how in the world are we going to get through this? And the thought went through my mind that we had to be strong for these people because these people were hurting too. It was not the same kind of hurt, but they were hurting. And I really think that that was part also of an evangelization process where if I fall apart for these people, and I know half of that family that I love so much really isn't in tune to who God is and what he can be in their life. If I can't stand up to this after I've been sharing how I feel, this is my chance to give back to God what he so graciously gave to me. And he did give me the, the grace to get through that. And the least that I felt that I could do was to be faithful to him and to know that this is not of him and that these people that are coming are just as affected by this probably as, as I am only not as, but it, they didn't lose a daughter. But every a lot of people have daughters <laughs> and you can't help but think it, it's a realization also that it can happen to you. If it can happen to, to us, it certainly can happen to them. People have often said to me, you and God must have remarkable faith in order to have gotten through the situation. And that's given me some perspective because I don't feel my faith was that strong at times. We all have doubts about how strong our faith is. But it's helped me, I think, strengthen my relationship with God and my, my faith. The fact that uh, <laughs> I'm expected to have such good faith, maybe I better work on it. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> better work on, work on that. And, and, and I, I think I'm continuing to grow, grow in faith because of what people have said to me and what, what people feel about what we're demonstrating. Uh, I feel I need to strengthen it so I can live up to that expectation, shall we say. Jessica's sons were in the car when everything happened. Can you share about how they lived through this awful loss of their mother and father? Uh, I remember when we came back to the house, those two boys were asleep up in, um, in our bedroom on the floor. And when we got back to the house, Hillary and Brian and the little baby she had were in another room in that house. And um, when we got up in the morning, when those boys got awake, they jumped in bed with us. But they, they heard Owen. When they heard the little boy, the little baby, they jumped up and they said, Owen's here, Owen's here. And they ran in there in that room and they jumped in bed with Hillary and Brian and they were a family from that day. They were a family. And that was such a gift for us to see that and to know that they were going to be all right. They always knew they were going to be loved. They always knew that they were going to be taken care of. We were so fortunate that we could offer that. They were had a good relationship with Hillary and Brian as uncle and aunt, and now they were going to be the caregivers for these children. And eventually these children decided that they wanted to be adopted. And when that happened, they, they were, and they decided that they wanted to take their name. So they are, you know, these are the parents now that these boys have always had. These are 
this is really mom and dad. For me, it's kind of sad to, to, I mean, I'm, I'm happy, I'm happy for them, but I feel bad that my, that Jessica never got to see how big their feet got. You know, those little dumb things that you notice. Particularly in cases with intimate partner violence and mental illness, there tends to be misinformation. How did you find people's responses after your daughter's death? If anything, people should be more outgoing about communicating that they know what happened and that they understand what we're going through and are willing to help us in any way they can. I remember being in the middle of a conversation with somebody, and finally it comes up and said, oh, yes, I'm meaning to say how sorry I was about that. And they know about it and don't want to say anything about it because they don't want to bring it up. That would be my, my only suggestion. It has been several years since Jessica died. Looking back, do you have any wisdom to share about the grieving process? Well, I guess when it comes to the, the grieving process, don't ignore it and don't be hesitant to talk about it. I lost my mother when I was a teenager and I think I was hesitant to talk about that and I, I think that was an issue being a, a macho guy you know you don't you don't talk about grief but with Jessica I've always been encouraged I'm always ready to talk and I'm always ready to share my story and, and as I said don't bottle it up in yourself always be ready to talk about it and I think it's helpful because people out there who want to help you are not going to bring the issue up. They're always going to be afraid that they're, they're going to be penetrating your personal grief. So if you're the one grieving, don't be afraid to bring it up. And if you're the one helping someone who's grieving, don't be afraid to bring it up. I quite often will tell someone who's, who's grieving, it's okay. You can grieve and you allow yourself a certain amount of time for grieving. And what I would do is I would be going about my day and I would start to grieve and I would allow myself a certain amount of time. And then I would say, I'm gonna allow myself 10 minutes to dwell on this and then I'm moving on to something positive and something that's going to make a difference somewhere else or trying to focus on a life that is being positive for others and, and yourself. And that, that's my, um, my way of doing it. But I do agree with John on the, uh, you know, if you see somebody and you don't know, really know what to say, and it happens in every grief situation that you're in, you go up and you want to talk to the family and you don't know what to say. People are just so glad that you're there that you really don't need to say anything. You can just give them a, a tap on the shoulder and just just look in their eyes and just, you know, and really try to remember that you're not walking this walk alone. Even if you think you are, God is with you every single step of the way. How We Grieve is hosted and written by Edward Herrera, with production help, editing, original music, and creative direction by Jay Lampart. If you or someone you love are the victim of domestic abuse, seek help immediately. The number for the National Domestic Abuse Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also reach out to Catholics for Family Peace. Once again, Dr. Sharon O'Brien. 
So we are Catholics for Family Peace, Education and Research Initiatives. It's a long name, but if you just Google Catholics and Family Peace, our name will pop up. The uh, URL is catholicsforfamilypeace.org, catholicsforfamilypeace.org. Special thanks to our guests for sharing their stories of loss and hope. This has been a production of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. To learn more, visit our website, howwegrieve.org.